Welcome to the Thinking Practitioner Podcast. A podcast where we dig into the fascinating issues, conditions, and quandaries in the massage and manual therapy world today. I'm Whitney Lowe. And I'm Tel Luca. Welcome, Welcome to, to the, the Thinking, Thinking Practitioner. Hey, this is Tel Luca, and today's episode is sponsored by Handspring Publishing. When I was looking for a publisher for the books that I wanted to write, the Advanced Myofascial Technique series, I was lucky enough to have had a couple offers. One was from a big company. The other was from a little company in Scotland run by four great people, Handspring Publishing. And in the end, I went with them. I went with my gut and chose Handspring because not only did they help me make the books that I wanted to write, but their catalog has emerged as one of the leading collections of professional-level books written especially for body workers, movement teachers, and all professionals who use movement or touch to help patients achieve wellness. And Handspring does have a new instructional webinar series called Moved to Learn. It's a regular series of each 45-minute segments featuring some of their amazing authors. And it really is a very impressive group of authors working at uh, Handspring there. So head on over to their website at handspringpublishing.com to check those out and have a a look at their excellent catalog while you're at it. And be sure to uh, use the code TTP when you find any of those gems that you need to have. Uh, at checkout. Again, the code is TTP, and we thank Handspring very much for supporting the podcast. Thank you, Whitney. Yeah, that code gives you a discount on your publish- your purchases at Handspring. Whitney, how you doing there? I'm doing okay. We are in uh, mid-May that we're recording this. I think this will be released sometime around mid-June. We are sort of on the brink of that period of everybody trying to figure out how to get back into some sense of normalcy and um, you know, it's been a very challenging time across the board for the entire field as well as for so many individuals. And it's just, uh, um, yeah, I was talking with uh, somebody the other day. It was Actually, I was talking with my sister the other day. She is a, a grant writer for a um, craft school in North Carolina. Mm-hmm. And uh, they, the school has had to, of course, close all of their summer programs and fall programs. And we were just saying, you know, she was talking to me about my business and said, you know, if watched you in your business over these years do all kinds of things and deal with all kinds of troubles and challenges. It's been really great to see how you've done this. And I said, yeah, well, part of that is that all those kinds of challenges and things in the business, there are things that you read about and you figure out alternative plans for how to deal with them. But global pandemic that wiped out the entire economy didn't really make it onto my radar screen of things yes. to prepare for. So yeah. like everybody else, I think we were really caught quite off guard by by this uh, situation trying to figure out what we do with it here. Well, yeah, you and everybody else and getting back to normal, uh we don't even know what that means, you know, is this new normal what is that? We'll know yeah. more like you said in a couple few weeks when this airs, but it's an evolving question and we're having to all of us having to adjust and deal with uh the changes as they come come forward. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh and you've got um uh, both classes, I imagine, that were canceled as well as uh, pra- clinical practice things, too, that all got put on put on, pa- put on pause for a while. Yeah, that's right. The in-person classes are just completely on hold for now. Uh, maybe the fall, we'll see. But uh, the online stuff is interesting. That's really boomed, and I know that's been keeping you busy, too. We've been yeah. having such a strong response to the online offerings that it's uh, faced us with the choice of how do we not overwork in this time. 
Yeah. Which mm -hmm. is a worthy, yeah. uh, worthy inquiry as well. Tell me a little bit about what you are doing with your online uh, classes and things, because I've seen some stuff across the social media landscape of, of uh, you wouldn't seem to get a, a good bit of engagement with your community and things like that as well. Well, it's the, that's the challenge is how do we stay engaged? How do we stay connected? And most people are either trickling back in or can't do their work still. So the question we're dealing with is how do you stay engaged as a body worker with your skills and your learning and your own body when our connection is virtual, when our connection is just through Zoom calls or offline study and things like that. So yeah, we've been experimenting with uh, a way, different ways of doing that, a few courses, but the most exciting one is a course where I give the lectures I would give in an in-person training about a particular part of the body. And then people go off and practice those in terms of movement practices with themselves. Yeah, or watching videos. And then we have a, a small group uh, with an instructor where they meet and discuss those things in a, a repeating cycle of those elements that turns out to be really gratifying for all of us involved. So we're learning a lot and going forward with that plan. Nice. So do they do, do they, when they go off to do this practice thing, they, they mm -hmm. do that um just for a, a certain designated period of time where they come back at a certain time later to meet up with the person who's going over these things a, with them? Is that yeah, it's a two-week right. cycle. You listen I to see. the lecture, uh -huh. about 90 minutes, do, ask questions and such. It's live. Then you go watch a video of me doing a demonstration. Then you take some of those techniques you saw and turn them into self-care for yourself or movement. For the people yeah. that are practicing, they can they can go ahead and practice that. But otherwise, you're, you're mocking them up on yourself so you get an embodied sense of that. And then the other element is you meet in a small group with an instructor on Zoom to debrief and discuss and share your learning. Mm -hmm. And then that cycle yeah. repeats every two weeks. Yeah. These are you know wonderful examples of some things that, you know, personally for me as a person who's obsessed with education and looking at educational strategies and methods, it's been fascinating to watch this process of educators becoming incredibly innovative in very short periods of time with having to do things because, um, you know, there there is a significant difference between um, designated and uh, well-planned out and well-developed online education curriculum as opposed to emergency remote teaching, which is really what, you know, a, a lot more of what's having to happen right now. Yeah, true. Um, and it's been really fascinating to watch um, what a lot of the educators and teachers have done um, coming up with creative ideas for how to do some things like this. And I think it's it's been very impressive. What are, tell me about what you're up to or one of the highlights there on your side. Well, you know, it's it's been, um, for us, it's been a little bit different because we were in the midst before this hit of a major course overhaul on all of our online programs. And what this has really done is just sort of accelerated the need to get that done. And it really hasn't impacted or changed a lot of what goes on with our students in our online programs because they're already all asynchronous, uh, meaning it, they weren't necessarily, you know, doing anything at one particular time. So yeah. um, there's been a, a great influx of people moving back into their courses to do things now that they're out of practice and they've got some time to, to, to work on it. So that's been very significant, but I haven't ventured back out into any sort of synchronous uh, delivery things like what you're doing there, because we're we're really trying to actually, you know, use this time as as much as we can for uh, getting all these program revisions uh, uh, done. So and that's probably plenty. That's probably keeping you busy. It's yeah, it's been uh, very very busy, and we're still a long way from from getting everything done because. 
it's just the the iterations of this. You see things that you want to have done differently, and then you do a little tweak on this, and like, no, I don't like that. I want to do this differently. I want to change that thing. I want to change this activity this way. And it's you know a whole lot of activities across seven different courses involving you know hundreds of video clips and you know interactive exercises and every little piece of technology. You know, one little blip on there, and some buttons not working, and somebody goes launched off into another place. So it's a lot of a lot of moving parts to, to get it um, get working correctly. Renovating your whole school and cleaning out the closets and uh, fluffing up the pillows and all that kind of stuff at the same time. Sounds like. that's right. Yeah, yeah, and all that all that project was planned before all this uh, calamity of collapse happened of everything. So it's all being done on top of that as well. So it's it is challenging, uh, but it's you know it's it's fascinating at the same time. And and so what do you want to what do you want to talk about today? Well, you know, I had. Um, Gotten so I've been thinking about this a little bit with some of the things that had come up during the COVID nineteen situation, um, and it, it made me think about this. It was interesting. It made me think about this uh, topic and this issue in in a light that I hadn't really given a lot of thought to before. And so I want to kind of I want to bounce some things off of you and just sort of chat about this a little bit. There's been a big um, a big question mark that's come up for a lot of people when they were making decisions you know, with their state legislators, et cetera, about who would close, who would stay open, mm-hmm. about whether or not massage therapy was medically necessary, or mm. you know, was it really a a uh, practice that was uh, in, critically important for people to stay in practice? And there's a lot of debate on both sides of that um, question uh, about whether or not it is or not. Oh yeah. I mean, I I have opinions about that, but that's not really where I want to go with this. What really came to mind for me in looking at this is we don't have any guidelines or definitions about this at all within our field. Of about what what's we do necessary? With all kinds of, yeah, about, well, you know, the, what the topic of, of medically necessary means or, or how do we define that? Uh, um, and it got me thinking about, well, you know, we do have this, uh, you know, this issue we've talked about before here on the podcast of, of at least the massage therapy world being sort of a split personality between whether or not we are a personal care service trying to just work on general overall wellness with people or if we are a healthcare profession. Mm. Um, and, you know, that question mark still exists out there about how we actually define what we are, and we're clearly some of both in a lot of different situations. But the the thing that made me begin thinking about this some more is that in many of our other um sister and brother allied health professions, occupational therapy, physical therapy, um, whatever, you know, chiropractic, whatever those other fields are, there are designated curricula that identify the things that you really need to know to be working as a healthcare professional. And in uh, massage therapy, in body work, for example, we have basic entry-level training requirements that establish a base level of training that an individual needs to get in order to be considered a safe practitioner and get their license. But that really doesn't get into the level of determining uh, or, or developing skills for them for you know the more challenging things that they would do with advanced practice. And that's mm-hmm. why they go to all these mm-hmm. CE courses and do all these kinds of things. But there really isn't a designated curriculum of advanced training. So what you choose to do with your advanced practice and your advanced training um, which direction you go in is completely up to you. Mm-hmm. And it's an interesting 
model because it uh, it certainly gives people a lot of individual flexibility and uh, individuality with creating their education, which I'm all for that. I think that's a great model. But at the same time, there are some really important things that people really should be paying greater attention to. It should be part of, let's say, a, a more formalized curriculum that doesn't happen when that uh, is the situation. So, um, you know, it, it poses an interesting question. And so we sort of talked about this topic of who charts our path? You know, it, it is mainly something that we do ourselves, but should there be some other kinds of guidelines about the kinds of things that are necessary, skills, knowledge, abilities for working in some of these other uh, different challenging environments? Okay, so that's the question. Then. Is what? How do we chart the path? Who charts it? It isn't so much uh, what makes something medically necessary, if I get your drift. It's more like what are the, how do we decide what to study and who's deciding that as we go into the advanced levels of this work? Is that right? Yeah, right. Yeah, for, for sure. All right. And there's some, you know, there's a, a whole passel of people out there doing some phenomenal work in the education world of teaching soft tissue manual therapists all kinds of really great stuff. Um but again, there is no sort of guidance, guidelines, or standardization on what we need to know to mm. work in some of these um, more challenging environments. And uh, that poses some challenging questions for us in terms of looking at ourselves from a regulatory standpoint and having to make some decisions in a time like this, in, in like the COVID-19 situation mm-hmm. of, you know, when should we go back to work based on how necessary and, and important this is and what kind of things do we need to be knowing to do that? Yeah. How, okay. So <laughs> there's so many places I could go with this. I mean, what is the the necessary piece? But it sounds like we're steering more toward the standards piece or to the how... You know how do we uh, how do we chart our path? Who's charting our path? Yeah. So if I just if I put the blinders on for a second, because the the medically necessary one is kind of pulling at me a little bit. But this I got to say, your your focus on charting the path and what are the standards is interesting. You say you're all for flexibility and creativity. Uh, so how does so you're, are you saying that you, you think it would be helpful if there were more standards in place coming from either government entities or professional entities that would help us in our advanced level trainings? I think this gets back to some fundamental questions that many of us in the profession have been trying to grapple with for years about uh, what is the sort of distinction. I mean, there is this sort of distinction between these two pathways of Personally, I don't, you know, have a great way to call this, so we end up yeah. calling it like personal care service yeah. stuff. But uh, you know, and again, acknowledging that there are health benefits to what everybody does. So please, you know, don't assume that I'm saying just because something's not called health care massage, there's no health benefits. We all know there's great health benefits with general relaxation massage, etc. But the individuals who practice in that model don't necessarily see themselves as working on. Um, you know, some type of uh, compromised health condition, let's say. Yeah. So they're saying, I'm just mainly working for people to w- reduce stress, help them feel better, you know, enhance their well-being, that kind of thing. I got the I got the just in there. I'm just working on that. I heard the just, by the way. Uh, yeah, I shouldn't say the just. Like, I, yeah, that's a good point. I am focusing on this, but I am not necessarily seeing myself as a healthcare provider who has to learn all of this other stuff about, you know, HIPAA and 
and contraindications related to complex medical conditions, making clinical decisions about, you know, should I do this, refer, that kind of thing. So, yeah, right. again, it's there's gray area, obviously, because it all, there's a blend over, there's not a, it's not a clear black and white distinction. So, um, yeah, that, 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 uh, that uh, sort of separation exists there, but we never have really established. Now, this is something I think I said in the podcast earlier, uh, in one of the uh, earlier episodes, that I think we do a good job of training requirements for the uh, the sort of focus on soft tissue manual therapy in the personal care service realm. Yeah. At whatever is that training level, the 500 hours, sort of the average time frame. I think we do a pretty good job For of... a massage therapist in the U.S., yeah, I think you're yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. And so, and I don't necessarily, you know, I agree with a lot of the people who like to practice in that environment saying, like, I don't want to have to go to a 3,000-hour program to do this particular type of work that I want to do, which is just mainly around um, stress reduction, wellness enhancement, and all that kind of thing. I think there's a valid point to that. Uh-huh. But then... For those individuals that do want to work with people who have compromised health problems and conditions and things like that, we are way, way undereducated for mm. grappling with those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. And, and the question comes up, who sets those standards? Who develops those kind of uh, you know, bars that we have to jump uh, over and, and yep. you know, credentialing issues? That's the, that's the sticky wicket. That is sticky. I, you know, and I, uh, I'm following your lead here, I'm referring to your overview here because you've, this is something you've been working with for quite a while and puzzling out and working with different collaborations and alliances around this question. How do we actually uh, set standards and what does, what needs to happen both at the entry level, but perhaps at the advanced level? I know for myself, uh, you know, I say, I think of myself as uh, focusing on wellness rather than disease. In other words, I think of I don't I wouldn't make the case that my own work as as valuable as it is would be medically necessary because I'm not uh, dealing just by nature of what I do I'm not dealing with levels of I mean sorry issues of survival of actually surviving surviving a life threatening illness say I'm interested well, and I'm be- I'm better at helping people go beyond the absence of disease into an actual a level of wellness that's an enhancement factor. Yeah, and I mean, this kind of gets into my personal opinion. I don't think we really can say any uh, aspect of what we do is medically necessary from the standpoint of uh-huh. life-threatening um, uh, treatments that somebody needs to have. Good. I think we fall in that can, all of us do, yeah. of not being medically necessary. Okay. But I would also call what you do uh, and the students who come to your work, to come to training for your work, as mainly focusing on the individuals who are working with people who have more compromised um, health issues that they may be grappling with, because you do some pretty advanced level training work with people on um, both the advanced level of what they're doing with their hands, the the palpatory specificity with what you're you're doing, as well as uh, the things that you're teaching them about uh, the way that they're working with people. It's it's all right, definitely at that level. So, so you're uh, saying, hey, yeah. you're tell you're doing you're doing advanced work, you're putting it out there as that even. And so the patients or clients that are going to be coming into your practitioner's practices are dealing with some serious issues. Yeah. And maybe there's some things that they need to know about that. Is that yeah. what you're saying? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I'm with you. I'm with yeah. you. 
Yeah. And so, um, you know, the the problem is this is part of our whole, um, you know, uh, guru education model that has been in, you know, uh, sort of our practice field for so many years that, you know, these methods started mainly because there were some uh, dynamic, charismatic individuals who started doing some type of thing, and they taught a group of people, and those people taught a group of people, and those people taught a group of people, and that sort of was the way a lot of the education got passed down, as opposed to curriculum being identified by some external body of, of subject matter specialists that all got together and said, these things are important for us to know, and so we're going to designate this as the curriculum for mm whatever it is, you know, whatever that field is, mm -hmm. you know, manual therapy, massage, you know, uh, structural integration, whatever your field of, mm -hmm. of choice is. Well, there's Those probably even, things don't exist. That's yeah. right. And there's probably even diversity of opinion about what the unified field is or whether there is a unified field. I know that that's a big issue within the structural integration community that we are not massage. We yeah. say. And that we want to distinguish ourselves from massage therapy, say. And I know there's those kind of distinctions that are important to different subgroups within our larger field of hands-on work as well. So that probably inhibits our ability to talk about what are the standardized things that should be there to keep people safe. Because I think that's what you're talking about. You're talking yeah. about what keeps the recipients of our work safe, especially if they're dealing with uh, serious medical or musculoskeletal issues, say. Yeah. And if I can, I would like to pick your brain a moment to tell me a little bit about that from, because I have heard this uh, a number of times, uh, oh and this would be great to have you know somebody knowledgeable in this particular area from the perspective of structural integration, <laughs> saying that they're not uh, massage. Okay. You know, How did what, I get to the... be elected as the spokesman for that? But I'll go there. I'll with you. Because you said it. I did. I brought it in. Uh, I. So yeah, yeah, so you're saying, so what's that about? Why do people say that, or what's, what's the rationale? Yeah, what's the or? argument of like mm -hmm. saying that that they're not that they're not massaged? And and I've heard that you know lots of times over the years, many many times. Yeah. So what what is essentially the argument? Wow. Okay. Let me see if I can go there because honestly, kind of no, a, honestly, uh, I yeah. can't say it's my position. Uh, I say I having worked at the, you know taught at the Rolf Institute for twenty years and trained Rolfers, and I chose that path rather than massage for myself for various reasons. Uh, and it, I also want to be really clear and careful that from my own values and my own perspective, it's not about positioning ourselves in relationship to each other. So that's why I'm probably hesitating or reluctant to even yeah. dive into it. And it's not like uh, structural integration is good and massage is bad. But let me just take the point of view of the people that are saying we, we uh, you know, the ones doing structural integration are not massage. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Maybe the argument is uh, when I'm doing structure integration, I am, uh, boy, my goals are different, perhaps. Eiderolf mm -hmm. uh, was very clear that we are not fixing symptoms. We are raising the functioning of the organism, the individual, to a higher level in an integrated fashion. And that by getting caught up in specific, say, musculoskeletal issues or any kind of other issues, we're actually missing the whole. And then by stepping back and keeping, in her mind, the functioning of the organism within the field of gravity as our goal, we're going to uh, probably benefit those symptoms, but we're not even going to try to f uh, address those in a direct or linear or reductionist fashion. We're going to keep our sights on the big picture. And that means the big picture of the way the body is connected in a, in a structural hole in her model, in the fascial uh, viewpoint and as a integrated 
uh, feeling, living, breathing, energetic uh, entity within a field of larger field of gravity, which she saw as the connecting matrix around mm -hmm. us. Yeah. So I hope I did that okay. I mean, that's the maybe the philosophical background. I think for sure, and now we're getting into Till's opinion here, mm -hmm. um, for sure there's an interest in distinguishing ourselves from each other professionally. And she was, uh, she was, she was dedicated to exceptionalism. Let's put it that way. She was from an exceptionally uh, motivated family background. She, as a woman in the 1920s who went and earned her doctorate, at Columbia was exceptionally driven and interested in being exceptional, and she was, and she wanted to start a work that was exceptional. And when you do that, you by definition exclude, in order to be exceptional, you exclude other things. And so she was saying, no, we're not all these other things. We're going to do this, and we're going to do it really well. Mm -hmm. So I think there's yeah. some of that heritage there too of being uh, exceptional in some ways. Yeah, right. Well, and, and again, um, I think we find ourselves, um, even with those, you know, sort of coming at this thing from various different perspectives, we find ourselves looking through a similar lens at this particular situation. Yeah. Now, um, you know, my, per again, my limited perception and understanding of the structural integration uh, is that the training program is pretty lengthy and pretty significant compared to many massage therapy training programs. So there is... Um, Objectively, uh, yes, I think no. there's that assumption. No, I think that I believed that when I had only been in that world. <laughs> Sorry. And then when I uh, broadened my horizons a little bit, I realized, especially when I got involved in the curriculum design and the accreditation, and then this is during the time the NCB was forming and those kinds of things, because mm -hmm. the Rolf Institute was in those discussions, and I was very active in those discussions within the organization realizing that, hey, actually the number of hours that we train people at, in that model wasn't significantly different, maybe even mm -hmm. less than some thorough massage schools, you know, something uh -huh. less yeah. than a thousand hours. And so honest, from an objective standpoint, the number of hours involved isn't more. Yeah. And yet, I got to say, I mean, this is where my loyalty comes into my heritage and my tribe and my buddies there to say there is some exceptional level work going on, exceptionally good teachers, exceptionally good practitioners, and an exceptionally effective narrative that has done a good job, I'd say, of evolving over time, too. Sure. And then, you know, that can, I mean, that gets us off into a whole different soapbox thing about yeah. you know hours and time uh versus right. you know competencies and what you're actually accomplishing in that period of time yes. and those things are not necessarily correlated um number of hours does not necessarily mean better longer programs are not necessarily better um you know what m makes it better is really the the outcomes and the instructional processes designs the educators and all the other el educational elements in there so yep Yep. I mean, you there's know. two jokes. I mean, just to go back to the rolfing thing, two jokes. One is like, how many rolfers does it take to change a light bulb? Uh, just one, but it's 10 sessions. Uh-huh. I've heard that one before. And the other yeah. one was, how many rolfers does it take to change a light bulb? Uh, one to do it, and another one to say, I could do that better. Because <laughs> okay. there's, you know, there is this kind of accept the the shadow side of exceptionalism is a, a, could be perceived from the outside as a kind of arrogance or superiority. And uh, yeah, I'll raise my hand. Yeah, I'm, I have been there, and maybe I'm a recovering, hopefully recovering, uh, person with a superiority complex. Uh -huh. Right. <laughs>
it doesn't show through. So you must be fully recovered. I think, <laughs> maybe maybe I'm soon. overly compensated. Who knows? Yeah. But in any case, yeah, I think that's that's some of the things in the background of us coming together to shared visions or shared standards, as you said, or even to talk about what are the things that we need to be aware of as educators in this field. So that's one of the barriers for sure is these divisions within our field. Yeah. I think maybe yeah. this this one you you talked about too about is it is it uh, are we medically oriented or are we uh, you said personal services I said wellness uh, you know are we are we oriented toward disease care or are we oriented toward health enhancement are we fixing symptoms and helping people with musculoskeletal issues or are we uh, in either of you elevating ourselves above that to a bigger, broader picture that includes those things, but actually is interested in taking people to the next level of functioning. Yeah. And again, like I said earlier, these lines are so blurry Yes, because you could take individuals who might be working, let's say, in a, in a work environment that would appear to be one basically focused on um, wellness enhancement pretty exclusively, like, let's say, a spa or a, a franchise operation for massage therapy. And um, uh, I asked this question a, a number of years ago. I was at an event that had um, uh, with one of the large fra- franchise organizations and some of the, the top uh, massage therapists in each one of their states had come to this event. And I asked them, you know, what do you see the most of? Who's coming to see you? And mm. they said like 75 to 80% of the people who come to see them are coming to see them for some type of pain complaint. Oh, yeah. So yeah. there goes our, you know, our bias and perception about people who work in franchises aren't doing, you know, healthcare-oriented massage. It just isn't true. Pain-specific you know? work or symptom-specific yeah. work. It's yeah, it's not true. No, I think you know? it's huge. I think, it, I think uh, honestly, I see this in my own practice. I see it in the people that come to our trainings. They want to know how to help. I see it. I see it in the rolfers, honestly, and the structural integration people. They want to know how to help people with problems, specific problems, because that's what's motivating the clients and patients to come to us. Yeah. And so yeah. then, yeah, you're right. Uh, we got to think not only, which has been my inquiry, is like how can we be really effective at helping people and creating the right expectations around that. So that, you know, we can have these miracles that happen where people feel amazingly better. And when that doesn't happen, how we can still be useful and realistic with people and help people feel empowered by what we provide. So how can we do that? But at the same time, be clear about our scope of training and the scope of ability and not overreach or overpromise or supplant other things that people might need to do to take care of themselves. You know, all those questions, too. Yeah, yeah. So I've got a couple other things that I want to to look at along these lines here, um, and we'll come back and, and uh, circle back around to, uh, to a couple of those things after we hear from our halftime sponsor today. Wow, that's um, quick. We're ready for them already? I think we are okay, here. Good. We're at about that uh, place here. So today's halftime sponsor is ABMP. And uh, we want to thank them very much for their support of the Thinking Practitioner podcast. And ABMP membership does include over 50-plus member discounts on everything from massage tables and supplies to cell phone service. And all members can access over 200 continuing education courses with free CE hours. You can read ABMP's award-winning member magazine, Massage and Body Work, at massageandbodyworkdigital.com. Both Till and I are frequent contributors there on that magazine, and it is a great, uh, it is an award-winning publication there. And listeners who join ABMP as new members can save $24 at abmp.com forward slash thinking. So with ABMP, you can expect more. And mm. we, again, appreciate their uh, support of the podcast here. Yeah, and the support there 
peddling hard, working hard to offer to the field. They're just, I know the, some of the people there, they're working so hard to try to get out accurate, useful, clear information in this time yeah, when so many and people just, are looking uh, for guidance. Absolutely. A quick little plug. They just launched a new podcast, too, with some really good interviews mm. of uh, things going on currently with the COVID-19 situation. So check that out uh, as well, the uh, ABMP podcast. It's uh, there's some good stuff coming on there as well. So, it takes some courage to uh, stand up and say things that are definite because we don't know. And and, and yet it, you, yeah. so you become a target of so much, well, appreciation on the good side, but certainly... Uh, you know, frustration of wanting to know more. And they're, they're you know, not, they're not the only ones, but they're ones standing up and says, okay, we're going to say some things. Yeah, yeah. And, um, you know, that's, that is so needed because people feel, um, I think part of what's going on is just a great deal of fear around uncertainty and, and lack of knowledge around things. So mm-hmm. um, there's, uh, it's clear that nobody has a, a, a monopoly on the answers right now, but um, certainly any any good, strong guidance with evidence-informed things uh, is certainly helpful, and, and uh, we, we can use more of that for sure. There you go. Yeah. So what else, what else do you want to make sure we have time for? Well, yeah, I wanted to circle back around to um, one of the other things about this, kind of getting back to this issue of um, <clears throat> looking at how we chart our paths and the fact that this— Yeah sort of advanced training component that we talked about is really up to everybody else to choose what they're doing. Um, up to the individual, you know, you're saying. Like yeah, the, up yeah. to the individual. Uh-huh. And um, <clears throat> I was thinking back and reflecting about this a little bit with myself and my sort of uh, educational path, which has been sort of a, a checkered combination of traditional education and school and radical independent uh, pushing away of traditional education uh, methods as well. And I remember there was a time, and you may be familiar with this with your background in psychology as well, there was a, um, a book I read when I was an undergraduate in college. Um, it was by the uh, psychologist Carl Rogers, and the book was called Freedom to Learn. Mm. I don't know that it's still in press any longer, but it was really a wonderful— it was one of those things that was life-changing for me because it was the first time I had read something that really said— to me, you are in charge of your own education. Um, mm-hmm. And I realized and recognized that a lot of things were up to me in terms of what I was really choosing to do with that. Um, I did take some of the messages out of that book and distorted them uh, to my benefit, the way a, a 19-year-old college student will do by saying things like, hey, I don't really care if I study before this test or after this test, as long as I learn this stuff. You know, that's what's really important. Yeah. And, uh, you know, uh, arguing that that uh, was a reason not to have to study a whole lot uh, immediately. <laughs> but um, uh, so anyway, that didn't have you know, oh great results. But it was an interesting idea. How old really were you, Lindy? Sorry, how old were you? You said... Uh, let me think. To I probably was 19 okay. or... Tw- Probably 20, probably yes. 20, 21, something like that. I'm laughing so, as a former 19, 20-year-old myself and yeah. as the father of one now. So, yeah, go That you're go watching, right that's right. Yes. Yeah, yeah, doing those things again. So, But anyway, uh, back to this whole thing, this whole idea of us charting our own education and saying, you know, how do we determine uh, what are the things that we want to learn uh, and what do we want to focus on? And I was, I'm thinking about, you know, what I see in our field with people making these choices about what to take for... Uh, CE course offerings, and they ask other people, for example, on social media, hey, what class should I take? What's a good thing for me to do? And the the, the 
course of your education, you know, if you want to think about it this way, is often charted by mm. where you live geographically and who comes around your neighborhood on the CE circuit. So mm. um, that ends up being a big factor to determine those kinds of things. But a lot of times it's also stuff like, well, who do people talk about a lot as being an, a, a good class to take? And what does that really mean? Because sometimes a good class is one that you enjoyed because it was really entertaining or, you know, it was some... Uh, kind of fascinating, sort of mind-blowing things were presented, but was this really a, a good educational experience that you can say met particular criteria that gave you established skills and abilities that you can walk away with? And those are some interesting questions that I think are important for us to all to look at when we're trying to evaluate what makes a good course offering or a good thing that's, that you should invest your time and money and, and effort into. The division there, I don't, you know, I'm, I'm... I'm almost reluctant to bring it up because it's so big. The division there you're talking about, or the, the paradox or the distinction there is, should we be free to follow our freedom to learn in that Rogerian sense of whatever's unfolding in the learner is the most important, most vital, and most motivating thing? Or are there uh, things that if we step back with some perspective uh, that we should be regulating or standardizing to make sure that pe- everybody knows? like it or not. Yeah. And I think what we see as, as at least I'll speak for myself, what I see now as a more seasoned educator is that there is, you know, things you kind of temper those perspectives and saying like, uh, you know, as a young student who doesn't know a lot about the field, mm. if you leave it 100% up to that person to designate their own path, they'll choose the things that seem either most interesting or easiest to go through. Mm. And that's not necessarily the things they need to really focus their attention on, because sometimes you need to study the stuff that's hard. And uh, like nobody would probably say, oh, I can't wait to start memorizing 200 muscles in the body because this is just going to be fun. You know, but it is important that they know where these things are. That's just a natural part of that training program that they have to do. So um, they, that's the challenge with the self-selected, self-identified training path is that you might miss some really important things that are crucial somewhere down the line. Like, just as an uh-huh. example, um, the vast majority of people, I think, um, who find themselves working in more um, challenging healthcare environments, let's say in a you know clinic situation or a hospital or places like that, will probably admit that their training on um, uh, HIPAA guidelines and healthcare communications and working within healthcare teams was either grossly inefficient or in, uh, non-existent in their entry-level training. Mm. Um, and these are skill sets that are, or knowledge about uh, many of these things that, that you know, uh, now, of course, this may differ nowadays since people are trying to pay more attention to some of these things. Some of these curriculums are, are doing a much better job of it, but there's a lot of training programs out there that just don't go into that kind of stuff. Um, and I know of a lot of massage schools that teach uh, massage therapists, for example, and do a really good job of training massage therapists, but they, they haven't learned some of the complexities of how healthcare teams work and how to communicate uh, appropriately inside those environments. All right. So do you see that as an important thing to include in entry-level education, how to interface with the medical world? Or do you see that as a specialty that someone would focus on after entry-level? 
Well, ideally, I really think it should be taught at our entry-level training programs because, as we said before, you can't always assume that you're not going to see people who have some of these challenges, and you're fond, you'll find yourself in situations where you need to communicate with other health professionals more um, uh-huh. you know, thoroughly or, or in the ways in which they're used to dealing with health records and things like that just because that's the nature of what we're doing sometimes. All right, so you're saying that me, as, whether I'm working in a franchise where you said the stereotype is that we assume people are coming for a spa experience and relaxation, or I'm working as a structural integration person where I'm interested, let's say, in Iderall's vision of integration and holism more than symptom fixing, you're saying that maybe I do need to know about HIPAA and interfacing with medical people? Yeah, I'm saying that those are skills that I think um, would be beneficial for everybody to be learning just because it has to do with, um, um, you know, record keeping. It has to do with uh, methods of communication and, and appropriate communication with other health professionals who we may be referring to and that sort of thing. So, yeah, I, d- I do think that's important um, mm. at that level. Okay. Yeah. Well, do you, I mean, do you have more specifics? Or do you have what? Do you, what's most important to talk about? These specific things is like is his high on your list, or is it medium? Are there other things higher on the list? Oh, I think there's probably other things that are higher on the list in terms of you know good decision making about what I shouldn't be doing. Um, you know, who should I be referring certain types of things to? I think that kind of thing is important. Um, but you know, people may have a good understanding of those kinds of things. Sometimes it really is more of a, I think a a gradient scale of how well we know some of these kinds of things as opposed to just a black and white, you know, we know this or we don't know this kind of thing. So um, uh-huh. this is, and this just it kind of gets into where we draw that dividing line between our, our entry-level training and what happens on some of those uh, advanced you know, training levels. Yeah. I'm just thinking, I'm ref- you're making me reflect, and I think I do it um, instinctually, is... Uh, you know, it's in my trainings. I'm I'm constantly thinking about where is the limit that I I want to go with this client or patient. Yeah. At what point do I need to uh, pull somebody else in, give a referral, uh, and what is right, in, both in terms of the expectations to create in the client, but then also where what are the red flags I need to be watching out for? Yeah. And it's a particularly challenging thing for us, I think, in this field because we do have many students who come into this work with, um, you know, they don't have undergraduate degrees when they come to their training programs, and they sometimes don't have, if you look at the overall skill sets of many of the, of the young people entering uh, the the workforce these days, lots of people, and I'm not just talking about in our field, I'm talking about in every field, complain about um, people's ability to write well, to communicate well, to um, you know interact appropriately uh, with uh, other professionals and things like that. There's some basic skill sets that we think ideally would be covered in, let's say, a basic undergraduate level education program, but there's even now, I think, a lot of questions about do people really learn how to do that stuff that well? in many of those kinds of environments. So um, that makes it even more important that we um, focus on how do we train some of those things if people aren't coming into uh, these programs and, and, you know, even with the, because there, there are no degree requirements. I mean, when you think about it, it's, we are the only field where somebody can come in without 
an advanced degree of any kind or without a, a, a undergraduate degree from a university or college institution and be a direct access health care provider. And that's kind of scary to me. I mean, it's it's quite scary, in fact, that we have that kind of flexibility. I mean, if you if you want to take it to the extreme of looking at it, it's like, a, you know, uh, 18 or 19 year old kid, the, the one that I'm talking about, you know, in college was making these poor decisions earlier. That individual can be a direct access healthcare provider and, you know, choose to treat anybody who walks in off the street with any type of complex medical condition. Um, okay, but if they want just, to, I find myself wanting to take the other side, so let me go for it. Uh, yeah. What about the commonly repeated point of view that says, well, actually, for instance, our liability health uh, insurance rates are particularly low because there isn't a whole lot of actual harm that comes from the normal practice of hands-on body work. Yeah. So is there is there evidence of actual this being a harmful or dangerous profession that we're engaged in? Yeah. Well, uh, and that argument has come up a number of times, and I think there's some in, there's some valid points to look at with that, such as, uh, yeah, I think overall massage therapy is not very dangerous in a broad scale. So there's, that's one reason we don't see a lot of those kinds of complaints. But we also do know that there are certain situations where it could have very adverse consequences in certain types of unusual circumstances. Hmm. The other thing is, and, and this is just completely anecdotal, um, and I'll just say this, this is, you know, this is not a data-driven statement, but it's something that I recognized a lot of times when I, you know, was in clinical practice, would have people come to me as clients saying, yeah, I went to see a massage therapist for this, and they hurt me. And uh-huh. I said, well, did you do anything about that? Saying, what do you mean? Like, no, I didn't do anything about it. So one of the reasons that I think a lot of injuries and adverse effects from massage are underreported is there's no place to go to tell uh-huh. anybody about it. Yeah, so, for a long time I taught ethics at the Rolf Institute, and one of, the, one of my... Uh, experiences, I guess, from stories I heard and also my own experience was that, you know, there probably wasn't a lot of physical injury, but there's all sorts of potential, uh, say, psychological level kind of injury or harm, both Mm -hmm. as subtle as body image or the way we think about ourselves or the narratives we tell ourselves about our symptoms. But and then beyond that, of course, the bigger, uh, the more egregious kind of violations of of our ethics involve sexual boundaries and things like that that go on. Yeah. So that's... Yeah. And, and all of those are very important uh, key factors of, of making sure that we practice safely with individuals. So, yeah. Um, yeah, and I think, you know, medical journals in general do not want to publish um, articles about uh, adverse effects of massage therapy, so you don't see those kinds of things making it to medical journals, and there's one that's one of the reasons that there's not a lot of stuff reported there. So I don't think we have accurate data about um, how frequent those some of those kind of uh, adverse events occur. And like you mentioned here, the instances of people feeling like they were uh, inappropriately communicated with or inappropriately touched or something like that during those kinds of environments, that kind of stuff is just not well reported at all. Okay, but that's those are soft skills, aren't they? Aren't those more in the realm of, say, human interaction and understanding more about the therapeutic alliance more than, say, a medical type of model? 
I think it crosses the, crosses both lanes because there's many instances, uh, you know, other instances where you like a person would come into me and say, yeah, I had this really, you know, bad neck injury and this person worked so deeply on me. It just like was killing me after they were done. So, uh-huh. I mean, that's clearly an inappropriately applied manual therapy approach. Uh-huh. Um, but that doesn't get reported anywhere. You know, uh-huh. there's just, it's just what the person does is they say, I'm not going back to them anymore. And, you know, so. Okay. So what would you like to see happen what would i like to see happen yes <laughs> where do we I'd go like from to here? see it all be fixed yeah <laughs> well we got a roadmap for us or what oh, are you gonna... man you know i'm i gotta admit i'm getting tired oh. uh you know i'm 30 years into this battle of trying to find some way to, you know here's the thing if this was an easy answer uh-huh. we'd have done it a long time ago uh-huh. um uh, really what I endeavored to do today or wanted to do today was to, to shine a like sort of a different light on this sort of issue of us thinking about the fact that we do self-select our educational paths along these ways. And there's a lot of challenges and uh-huh. problems that come along with that. I think the answers to that are far more complex and they are things that we've attempted to grapple with with you know various forms of credentialing through you know certificate and certification programs and licensing issues um, you know all of these types of things and most of them are inadequate and in many instances inelegant solutions to mm. these challenges with and they're fraught with lots of problems mm. but oh, I, I, yeah, I always I, felt I get you. like yeah. No, I get you. And I, I just underlining the, the tired you mentioned, but I was all ready for you to propose a solution, and then I was ready to pick it apart too, because that I don't think there are uh, really good, yeah, models we have out there. But, but no, I I would agree, and I, that's why I'm saying like if it was easy and there was a really good solution, I think we would have done that a long time ago. And yeah. uh, I've been involved with a number of failed adventures and number of adventures that I thought were uh, like uh, steps in the direction, but flawed models of, of doing things that I think are, you know, uh, an, at least attempts to look at some of these things and attempts to find solutions. But it's it's just, it's challenging. It is big and challenging. But I would uh, advocate, I think the, the what I would leave us with today is really saying how important it is that I think we we start to at least come together on establishing what we feel like are maybe some core sets of, of competencies and skills that we should strive for. And most of our people who are working like you and I are with education levels at the CE level and an advanced training level, really try to tackle making sure that we fold as many of these things into our training programs uh, as we can so that we can help people uh, have access to getting those uh, solutions available to them. Let's, yeah, that's right. That's right. And let's let's go ahead and just brainstorm together to acknowledge at least a couple more of the bright spots out there. Because if, you know, this it's a difficult situation and a lot of people, yourself included, put a lot of years into trying to, say, raise the standard or get some agreement on these standards and institutionalize those. And, uh, you know, me teaching in different places, I see a variance across, for sure, states, but even countries in terms of the amount of work that's been done on trying to get an agreed upon level of training. And uh, I have uh, reluctantly, I don't think it's in my nature, but I've reluctantly got behind that and saying, yeah, actually I do see for sure clear differences in the quality of work being done in places where there has been some regulatory involvement, say, in in our field. But what yeah. do you, what do you, 
can you think of, I got, I'll think about it too, but can you think of bright spots where this, there seems to have been progress or something that you can stand behind? And say, this is well, good? yeah, I would say some bright spots that I see are, again, the evolution of, of the internet and the uh, global communication and social media has allowed the rapid dissemination of a lot of models or of a lot of information, you know, current research and things like that gets out faster that way. Mm. It also allows for, at least in the constructive times, it does allow for academic debate about things that help us move ourselves forward uh, in some of these directions. So I think there's certainly some benefit uh, in, in that direction of doing some of those kinds of things. I do think there's also some some benefit in us looking at um, issues around, you know, competencies of what people, what do we want people to be able to do once they get out of these training programs and uh, encouraging some of the educators who are out there doing some of this kind of stuff to focus on a little bit more on uh, educational um, quality in some of these kinds of programs, which I think has happened. Um, I do see that as also a bright spot that, you know, in former years it was pretty easy for a lot of people to to go out and sort of become gurus on a particular topic area and just um, you know really uh, get out there and promulgate their own pet ideas and theories and models and things like that uh-huh. and now there's a lot more sort of critical analysis of these kinds of programs and, and <laughs> yes, content in ways that I think helps us all get better um, yes. so I see those as steps in the right direction and and steps uh, toward improvement out there. And, you know, you look at the people who are doing really good stuff out there, really good educators doing really good stuff, and people aspire to meet that standard and go farther and go past that, which is good. Yeah, no, I know it's, it's, it keeps me on my toes looking around at what my colleagues are doing. Yeah. And I'm, uh, I'm with you on the tired and I'm with you on the limits of what we've tried. I'm also with you on the bright spots because there's something really dynamic about our profession's hunger to learn and the amount of dedication, time, and money that people just throw them into their uh, personal improvement, but their professional improvement, their learning. And it's enormously gratifying to be a part of that. It is. Yeah, it is inspiring. And I think for me, that's one of the things that has kept me going. Yeah. Um, all this time is is seeing some some really good things out there and and like you said looking around with some of my colleagues like oh man this is good this is really good stuff let's like you know try to make this take this another step forward or something like that and so, the way I yeah and the way that's uh, you know we used to have this kind of like a virtual actual division it's getting very blurred here in mm-hmm. in the post COVID world where it's it's not a clear in-person someone said to me the other day oh we're having this nice in-person conversation you and me and we're on zoom and i go okay so this is the new in-person really so it's there's a way that that's getting deeply integrated as well as uh what we used to call social media which is now just another way that we're connected it's another social dimension yeah and some of the very creative and interesting uses of that for better or worse i mean there's certainly downsides to the uh, say the addictive nature or the fragmented nature of that kind of awareness, but there's also really creative and engaging things that are coming out of, say, Instagram, and uh, and uh, specialized groups within the different platforms that allow a uh, a focused conversation. And uh, it's just a fascinating landscape with a lot yeah. of dynamic movement in it. And then, and I heard you say something the other day. I can't yeah. remember where this was. With this was on a. Uh, um, a presentation that you were doing online somewhere or some discussion you were saying that um, um, 
really we haven't, uh, in many instances, we haven't decreased social distancing. We've decreased physical distancing with That's each right. other because right. there has been a whole lot of emphasis toward increased communication and interaction to some respect. Um, yep. with a lot of things that we've been doing. So that's an, that was an interesting uh, way to look at it, I thought. And there's a lot of cost in doing more through this medium, through this virtual medium. A lot of cost. It's not the same as touching. There's never will be. No way. Yeah. It, it's hard to include the body. Always sure. will be. Yep. And yet, it's I just realized yesterday, I'm actually getting better at reading subtle cues. I'm getting better and more intentional as a listener and I'm actually getting better, too, at thinking about how learning impacts the body because I can't get away with as much. I can't just sit there and talk to people for an hour and a half and not have them uh, squirm. Yeah, you know, right. I have to think as an educator and as a, as a practitioner, too, I have to think about how do I really engage people's interests on all levels and keep yeah. their body engaged and keep their emotions engaged and all those kind of things, too. Yeah. So um, despite our best, best efforts, I don't know that we have solved that uh, major world problem today um, in this short segment of time, but it, hopefully at least maybe we shined a light on it and let some people have some different things to, to think about and Thank reflect you. on there. Well, so, thanks for bringing yeah. it forward and proposing it. Should we do our wrap-up? Yeah, got a, I think we're, uh, we'll call that a wrap for today. Uh, you wanted to, to mention something, too, yes. um, for our ending uh, thing today, too, yeah. an organization that you've... Uh, uh, come across here. I want well, to have it's, you share that. it's my featured cause of the month, and who knows, maybe longer, kiva.org, K-I-V-A.org. It's a microfinance organization. They help match lenders with borrowers on a very small scale. They started in the developing world helping, say, uh, somebody be able to afford a cell phone so they could provide cell phone service for their entire village. And then it's moved on to anybody can apply for a loan throughout the world. And there's people in the developed world. There's several, there's a quite a strong U.S. contingent coming forward asking for loans. And then you can loan money directly to people who need it. The repayment rate is remarkably high. And you can actually apply risk uh, filters and uh, other kinds of filters for the type of loan people want. There's a lot of people borrowing money for health care expenses to get a surgery that they need or to start to buy inventory for a store they want to launch. What hasn't, I haven't seen a lot of, and I'm just, just starting to trickle in, is hands-on therapists taking advantage of all of the lenders out there wanting to help someone through these interest-free loans. And by the way, Kiva's loans are interest-free uh, by making a simple proposal, putting it out there, and seeing what you get. It's kind of a GoFundMe kind of platform for loans as opposed to donations. Uh-huh. And yeah, 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 they're interest free and they don't count against your credit rating. So as a lender, I know I've loaned a bunch of money there over the years. I know that I may or may not get paid back, but I consider that uh, an acceptable risk. It's a gift I'm giving in any case, like an interest free loan is a kind of gift. Yeah. So anyway, I the start check it out, kiva.org. I want to see if this actually catches on right now. There's only one body worker or one, um, say, massage uh, clinic in the U.S. right now that's listed on Kiva that's helping themselves through the COVID time. I know there've been a couple more, but uh, if you're interested in getting some assistance, checking out, or if you have even as little as twenty-five bucks to lend, just go check it out. Kiva.org. Great, you're great. Thanks so much for sharing that. I think that's a, a good thing. We like to help uh, people have some other <clears throat> input of things that may help them through this difficult time here. Mm. So that's great for for sharing that with everybody. Mm. 
And uh, we would like to say also thank you again to our sponsors for the show and to thank you all for uh, listening. Those of you who are listeners out there, we appreciate your listening. Um, you can stop by the uh, our site, thethinkingpractitioner.com, for show notes, transcripts, and other uh, additional information there. And Till, where can people find you on the interwebs? Advanced-trainings.com, where we also have the full transcripts, show notes, and a bunch of other stuff about what I'm up to. How about you, Whitney? Where do people uh, find you? Absolutely. People can find us over at the academyofclinicalmassage.com as well. And reminder, we've had some um, nice comments come in from listeners out there. You can always email us at info at thethinkingpractitioner.com, as well as finding us out there on social media. That's right. Please do let us know uh, your thoughts, your questions, your suggestions, and how we can best be supporting you during this time. So follow us. Yeah, follow us on social media or find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever you listen to podcasts. Rate us. Tell your friends, listen, and take care, everybody. That sounds good. We'll see you again in two weeks. Thanks, Whitney. Okay, take care. <laughs>